a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, folks, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. Slightly later than normal, however, very much looking forward to the show I've got. And there is another bonus show coming out this week with myself and Dan going through some of your Twitter comments we asked you for last week. And those will be out within a few days of each other anyway. So you've got two shows to make up for this one being a couple of days late. Uh, The podcast is approaching its one-year anniversary at the end of April. And this is the first time I'm ashamed to say I've got a fellow Scotsman joining me as well. So I've got researcher, lecturer, assistant editor at Outer Limits, magazine among other things he is also an author i've got malcolm robinson malcolm welcome to the podcast hi there it's a pleasure to be on andy excellent i did have one uh, listener mention would there be subtitles accompanying this so <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to do my best to try and not go too scottish as as you tend to do when you're speaking to somebody else that's uh, north of the border so but it's nice to hear that kind of friendly accent on the other side yeah, absolutely. You know, the Scots are well known, renowned for their hospitality and their friendliness the world over. And it's always great to, to speak to a fellow Scot on the radio because most of the radio shows I do is either with Americans, Canadians, etc. So, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Andy. Let's hope the, the listeners can understand the slang. Absolutely. They tend to like the accent anyway, even if they don't understand what we're saying. Um, so, listen, Malcolm, when I introduced you there, you've got a whole host of, you know, accreditations to your name like researcher lecturer editor author of course you've got many many books as well and there's only so much we can cover in one show the first thing i want to ask though is what was it brought you malcolm into the subject of not just ufos but as listeners might not know the paranormal in general yeah i mean it's it's always been a passion in mine andy um since i was a small boy growing up i had this desire this strong desire to find out about all these things spooky and, and mystical, you know. And I started to um, read books about ghosts. But initially, they were the pan book of ghost stories, so they were just made-up stuff. But it kind of made me go further, and I started buying books, allegedly, that were presenting true ghost stories. And it was fascinating, you know, it was stories from all over the world. And um, But as I was growing up, I honestly felt, and I've said it many times before, I honestly felt, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> There's no such things as ghosts and poltergeists. And you know what? I'm going to set out in a one-man crusade and prove that that's the case. And uh, so after, you know, acclimatised myself with other books and getting into newspaper articles and stuff, and this is this is pre-internet, kind of you've got to remember, this is uh, the middle 70s. Um, in 1979, however, I formed my own society entitled Strange Phenomena Investigations. And the aims of SPI is basically to collect, research, publish all manner of means to do with the, the paranormal and, and effectively try to get some grasp on it, what's going on, you know. And although, yes, admittedly, I was sceptical, I was, I was there. I was there to 
yeah, get my eyes opened, you know. And of course, the the first case I did that was, of course, the Deckman Woods case that fell in the the, the winter of 1979. So um, that case can open my eyes, and a lot of other cases did so afterwards uh, as my journey progressed throughout the years. But uh, it's been a fascination, as I say, a young child, my mother and father, when we, we went to holidays to Scarborough and Blackpool, and the first thing I headed for was the ghost train. You know, <laughs> as a young child, I just loved just sitting in that wee carriage and hurdling through this darkness with things falling out on you and little strings coming down from the darkness folding over your face. And I know it's very sad, but I, I was fascinated by this. And of course... My mother, my father, my aunties, my uncles all told me stories about the paranormal. And, and again, it was like fuel in the fire, you know, petrol in your car. It was extending that desire, extending that wish to find out more. So it was a it was a learning curve right since I was early. And having said that, I mean, uh, that wasn't my only mainstay. I mean, I, I played guitar. I played in a, a local pop group and we did rehearsals at Alawa Town Hall. We did a few gigs. And I knew that something had to give. It was either going to be the, the band or the paranormal. And uh, the paranormal won hands down, you know. So the, here I, I'm still doing it today, yeah. And is it fair to say you don't regret your choice you made there? No, I don't. I mean, uh, my, the, the guys in the band, I still see them on Facebook and they're doing songs. Uh, obviously, we're still in this lockdown, so they're, they're doing songs on, on Facebook. Um, but I, I used to go and see the band uh, and help them with the carry their gear into pubs and all that, you know. So, and they they, they said one time, I think we were in Fisher's uh, pub in Pitlochry, and they were playing there. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, a chap all the way from England because I, I stayed in England at the time. Please uh, welcome to the stage uh, the wonderful Malcolm Robinson. And everybody's going, who, who the hell is this? So I went up and did some backing vocals with them, and uh, it was great to do that. But no, my heart. My heart truly loves lives in the paranormal field, for sure. And that sounds like very similar to myself and no doubt a lot of the listeners as well, that you've had that interest in the subject growing up and from a young age. And for you, it was ghosts and then obviously UFOs and ufologies come into it later. That was quite the opposite for myself, where it was always UFOs. I'm a bit of a, a how do I translate this, scaredy cat? You know, there's a lot of other words for it. But when it comes to ghosts, absolutely believe in it. Uh-huh. Don't, want, don't want to ever see or experience anything myself. It is definitely not for me. H- had you ever had any experiences? You've mentioned you were quite sceptical and you almost sought out to debunk it and show there was nothing to it. So had you ever, ever had any experiences of poltergeist, ghosts or UFOs from a young age? Oh, many. Absolutely many, many, many. And we'd be here forever talking about them. And uh, But I'm happy to provide your listeners and yourself a few four instances uh, just yeah, to get quite, quite your ap- appetite. Um, and I've said these many times to you in my lectures, so some of your listeners may be aware, but for those who aren't, um, we were in a house in uh, Tullabuddy, where actually I used to live. Uh, that's in Clackmannanshire in central Scotland for any overseas listeners. And this lady claimed that she was um, she had terrible problems in the house with ghostly manifestations, things falling off the wall, things disappearing, and everything seemed to happen in this back bedroom. So we went upstairs with the equipment, uh, the VCR recorders, uh, audio tape recorders. We took a psychic medium with us and we set everything up and we sat in darkness. Um, people might say, well, why do you have to sit in darkness? Why not with an electric light on, etc.? We just find it's more conducive to, you know, paranormal happening in darkness. 
So anyway, nothing was happening, not nothing. And uh, I was sitting on the bed saying, oh dear, why do I do this? You know, this is, nothing's happening. This is terrible. And then suddenly, bang, the whole room illuminated by thousands and thousands of tiny pinpricks of white light, like a children's November the 5th handheld sparkler, sparkling lights all over the, the room. And it was all over the ceiling, the walls, the, 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 the carpets, your clothes, your face. And I calmly turned round to my, well, not really calmly, I was quite excited, actually. I turned round to the psychic and I said, what's this? What on earth is this? And she just calmly says, Malcolm, oh, that's psychic energy. You sometimes get that in an investigation. And I says, it's wonderful. But after only about 19, 20 seconds, Andy, it was like a dimmer switch on your wall for your lights. It slowly, slowly got darker and darker and darker and then bang, you're back into darkness. So with fingers crossed, we rushed to the VCR equipment, pressed stop, pressed rewind, pressed play and hoped upon hope that we had the cameras had captured this magical circus of lights. But sadly... Not a thing was seen. And I've said it before, even if we had captured that, Andy, the sceptics would have said, oh, you made that on computer. Oh, that's very good. I think with the paranormal, Andy, it's really a case of you've got to be there and see that yourself and dot the I's, cross the T's, try and think out the box what it could be, what it couldn't be. But we had no explanation for those lights that night. It's a nice wee story, but for those who were not there, they might not believe it. But believe you me, by God, did we see that that night. It was incredible. So you started off with this group, SPI, that I take it was to look at mainly, was that ghostly apparitions, poltergeist, that that sort of side of phenomenon? And, and was there an intent to study UFOs at the same time? Or is that something that just happened naturally? Well, it happened that, to be honest with you, UFOs, I guess, came along first. Um, just prior to setting up the SBI in 1979, I must uh, state to your listeners that uh, I travelled extensively going to lectures in England. Uh, I joined Bufora, the British UFO Research Association. And, uh, you know, I met some of my heroes, Jenny Randalls, Bertolt Kuhlman for Sweden, David Hensel for Canada. Uh, and numerous other people, and I sat eagerly in the, the conference halls digesting everything these guys had to say. It was a wonderful, wonderful days of British ufology where you packed two, three, four hundred people into conference halls. Today you wouldn't get that. It's all on the internet and stuff. But um, but yes, I mean, it was in 1979, to answer your question, uh, that, that's when obviously the Deckman Woods event happened. Yeah. And that was my very, very first proper investigation and I, I really I didn't know that much myself I was only about 22 years of age at the time I'm an old guy now I'm 60 63 but uh, and back then I was 22 and I was just blown away by what happened there you know and uh, if you're happy for me to relay some of the details on that yeah yeah, do you know what? I was going to go with something else first, but I'll flip it round because I think the timing's right. And so Deckman Woods incident, I'll, I'll just set up for you, is uh, Robert Taylor or, or Bob Taylor in November 1979. He was a forestry worker who encountered, well, do you know what? I'll let you tell the rest because you're the expert on this. Yeah, so I mean, um, there was a news bulletin on uh, BBC Radio Scotland and I just knew that I had to meet this fella. So the following day, uh, I managed to secure um, Bob's phone number and uh, I travelled over to a, a wee village, a wee town called Deans, which is near Livingston Newtown in central Scotland. And I was joined on that investigation by my colleague uh, Sandy Craw. 
And as we went into Bob's living room, his living room was awash with press reporters and TV guys and all that. And, it, you know, it was like a circus. And Bob said to me, he says, who are you? I says, oh, just a young guy just from, from Tullabuddy and just I'm interested in your story. He says, well, I'm going to talk to you, Malcolm, because I'm fed up with all these TV guys. And I says, thanks, great. So I sat him down and I did an audio tape recording with him. And then he says, look, do you want to come up and see the site? I've got a couple of guys from uh, Bufora here, uh, Andy Collins and Martin Keatman. And I says, yeah. Now, we were, we were um, kind of struggling for time, me and Sandy. So I says, let us go up first. We'll meet you, you know, and we'll see you when you come up. Uh, to cut a long story short, we eventually found the, the snow. It had snowed that night, and so the snow the following day was all over the, the ground. We eventually found the spot, and Bob was there with uh, Martin and Andy, and you could clearly see the, the indentations in the snow. They had, you know, they had brushed the snow away, etc. But what Bob told me was that uh, he was employed by the Livingston Development Corporation in the forestry department, and part of his job as a foreman was to ensure that no cattle or sheep strayed into the woods and everything was okay. And it was a very mundane job. It was a job that he had done many times in the past with no problems whatsoever. He had no interest in UFOs, the furthest thing from his mind. Like everybody else, he saw the wee bit on the television. You see a wee bit in the newspapers. But that's all. He had no interest in it. Absolutely none. But all that changed on the morning of November the 9th, 1979. He drove up to Deckman Woods in his pickup truck. He jumped out of that with, accompanied by his Irish red setter dog, a dog called Lara, a beautiful dog, and they walked along this forestry ride. Now, uh, as they came to the end of the forestry ride, it branches out into a small clearing, and um, as he stood at the small clearing, he was absolutely stunned to see this black domed-shaped object hovering about 20, 30 feet above the grass and parts of it seemed to disappear then it would solidify again it had a flange going around its perimeter with these kind of cross-like projections sticking up from the flange his dog is bark 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 you know very loudly beside him and he's in the twilight zone he couldn't believe this he's, he's never seen anything in his, his life before like this it's not an aircraft it's not a helicopter this is way before before the drones etc and then suddenly as if it couldn't get any stranger what resembled two Second World War sea mines. Those mines you got bobbing about in the North Atlantic, and if any ship struck that, bang, you know, you'd blow up. Similar to that, dropped down from beneath this object, impacted on the grass, and started rolling across the grass, making a kind of sucking or a plopping noise on the glass as it traversed towards Bob. Then they stopped, right in front of Bob, extended two of these rod-like projections to Bob's hips at his top of his trousers and pulled them, pulled them very, very forcibly. And at that point, Bob remembers a horrible burning smell, like burning brake linings, as if you had applied the brakes in your car very quickly to avoid an accident, and the smell comes up from the footwell. And there was a swishing sound. He remembers a swishing sound as well. And then, bang, he lost consciousness. When he regained consciousness, the larger object was gone, the smaller objects were gone, and there were over 40 triangular and circular impressions in the grass. 
Um, he tried to get back to his truck. He tried to radio base, but he found that he had he couldn't speak. His throat was dry. He had a graze under his chin, a, a nasty graze on his forehead. His trousers was his trousers were ripped, and his jersey was all muddy. And he uh, he couldn't coordinate his driving. He actually reversed into a ditch in the woods and couldn't get the back wheels out. They were spinning. So he staggered back to his home in Dean's and his wife said, what on earth has happened to you? Look at the state of you. And he said, I've been attacked. And his wife went, attacked? By, by who? And he said these immortal words. It sounds funny, but this is what he said, by a spaceship. And his wife went, come in. There's no such thing as a spaceship. So anyway, um, she realised that her husband, he was distressed, clearly. Clearly something had happened. She knew her, her husband. So she phoned for the doctor. The doctor examined Robert, they checked his vitals, and other than kind of shaking up, um, he, he was okay. So they took him to to Bangor Hospital just for an extra checkup. But he got fed up waiting. He was held about two hours, and we never saw anybody. He discharged himself. By that time, his boss, Bob's boss, Malcolm Drummond, uh, one of the forestry workers, uh, head of the forestry team, um, met Bob. They went back up to the site and examined the site. Yeah, truly, there were they were marks there. And because, because it was an assault by person or persons unknown, the police became involved, the Bathgate police. They cordoned off the area and they did a full investigation and uh, it's probably the only case where officially the police have been involved in a, an assault which we could you know, go along the lines of a, a UFO, etc. Um, Bob, to, you know, sadly, Bob passed away a few years ago, but he always said, Malcolm, oh, Malcolm, if you had seen what I saw that day, you would have been amazed, you know. And uh, I think it was 1993, uh, Andy, we erected, with the help of the West Lothian Council, a big stone cairn with a brass plaque. Then about two years ago, I, I fought tirelessly with the West Lothian Council to please, please, please erect some signage in the woods because people, Andy, were coming from all over the world to see this famous site. They didn't mm -hmm. know where it was because they didn't know where to go. So we eventually got a big sign up there and marker posts. And it's just like Rendlesham Forest, um, you know, a big case in 1980. There are marker posts there. They have a big model in the middle. Um, so I'm very pleased that we've managed to get that signage up there. But um, there have been many theories to explain the case, some of which I wrote up in my book on the case, the Deckman Woods UFO incident available on Amazon. But um, it's it's a smashing case, and, and I truly believe, Bob, I really do. And, and it is, it's great to hear that as well, because it's one that I wasn't too familiar with until, until more recently as well. And like, again, your book, I'll put the links and everything for it as well. If people want to go into it in more detail, which I'm sure they will, um, they, they can buy that to find out. But did obviously there was the, the moment where Bob lost consciousness and then regained consciousness later on. So well, long before the days here of mobile phones, or did he have a watch? Was there any missing time involved? Is there any claims of abduction? Or is it a case of he just lost consciousness and that was it? 
He did lose consciousness for sure. Um, when he staggered back to his home in Deans, um, as far as his wife would tell us, there was no missing time, you know, because Bob was in the forest around about half past ten in the morning, and it was I think it was the back of eleven, quarter past to half past eleven before he got back. So there wouldn't be any missing time as such. That said, um, he was regressed by a Scottish stage hypnotist, a guy called Robert Halpern, who's no longer with us, I believe. And, um, you know, the type of artist who, if you're eating a, 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 an onion, it'll taste like an apple, etc. Um, so he wasn't qualified in any of the special specialities as far as regressive hypnosis on abduction cases go. But he did indeed regress Bob, and Bob only went back to that time when he lost consciousness. So there was like a big gate, a big barrier in his mind that stopped any further recall, if indeed there were such recall after that episode. Um, so we don't know about that. Um, but uh, his trousers were examined by the Living at Bathgate Police Station and, and in Edinburgh by the Forensic Science Department. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Lester Nibb told me after analysis of the Roberts trousers, he says, Malcolm, these trousers were not ripped by any forest debris, i.e. sharp stones or sharp twigs or a barbed wire fence. He says these trousers were pulled very forcibly in an upwards manner and um, by a mechanical manner. And um, we don't know what, what could have caused this. So that, that's from the own police um, forensic guys. Um, Ian Wark, one of the investigator officers on that case, he's completely baffled as I was. And I've interviewed uh, Ian Wark a number of times. And point of fact, I gave a lecture on the, the anniversary of uh, that event just a couple of years ago in, um, in Deans and it was packed to the gunnels and uh, Ian Wark is retired now from the police at the end of my lecture he stood up and he spoke to that audience exactly what the police had to do with that case and it was fascinating to listen to uh, an ex-serving police officer talking about a UFO case in the manner that he did. What was the public perception of UFOs in, from a Scottish point of view or a UK point of view in 1979? What what was the thinking? Was it the the Hollywood flying saucers still, um, little green men? Was it in the thoughts much of the public? I guess it was because we have to bear in mind that uh, ufology really kicked off after Kenneth Arnold's sighting. Then after that, you had all the sci-fi films, you know, the day the earth stood still. So all that was in the public conception. All that was in the public arena um, of imagination, people coming from other worlds, etc. Um, but to answer your question, in 79, when I started off as a, a young guy, um, there was there was nothing really, there was no major UFO groups in Scotland or, or even paranormal groups in Scotland at that time. Um, you had um, a gentleman who was representing Bufora in Edinburgh, um, but that's about it. And uh, so I knew that Scotland truly needed a, a, a club or a society dedicated to try and find out the answers. And that's why we set up SBI in 1979 to do that. Um, these days, you know, there's oh, they're ten a penny everywhere you go, every street corner. There's nearly a, a UFO club or, or etc., which is great. 
but we have to remember as well that um, we have Sky Television to thank for all these wonderful programmes. Uh, Blaze on Sky just now is running a series of programmes on UFOs. Uh, and when I when I was a lad, the BBC and the ITV networks, when they, whenever they presented a UFO programme, it was always one-sided, sceptical. But again, thank, thankfully, due to independent television makers, you get a balanced view, which is fantastic. And um, I mean, myself, I've done a few TV shows and you've got to get your point over, especially on live television, because it's your one and only chance to do that. And uh, it's just a great subject to talk about. And we have to bear in mind, Andy, that um, people laughed at John Logie Baird, the inventor of the television. They said, that'll never work. It did. They laughed at the Wright brothers. Uh, That thing will never fly. Oh, sorry, it's flown. So what I'm trying to say here is that people should never, ever laugh at things that look and sound ridiculous because they may look as if they're ridiculous, but they're not, you know, and um, maybe I was a wee bit naive back in the day when I set out to to disprove these things. But uh, I certainly, I mean, I, I totally believe that we're dealing with some form of non-human intelligence. I totally believe in life after death, etc. Only because of the research that I've done that's convinced me that that is so. And I'm going to get to talking about that UK scene through the decades. Like you say, you started in the late 70s and you've seen it a lot and it's changing. But before I do, are there any other stories, especially from a Scottish perspective, that you know of that you don't feel maybe get the attention of a Deckmont Woods, um, which even then, comparatively to the Rendlesham or, or anything else, is still pretty unknown in the scheme of things? Is there anything else that you feel is, is a worthwhile story? Well, there are obviously a number of stories that's certainly worthwhile, um, but they are pretty much well known. And, um, you know, I'm I'm referring, of course, to the A70 uh, UFO abduction in central Scotland. We can also look at the Craig Lusker Reservoir photograph that was in near Dunfermline and the Pullman Reservoir photographic case as well. Um, on the paranormal side, we have the Socky Poltergeist uh, and various other cases. But I'm happy to speak about any one of them for sure. Yes. Well, I've got a few. I've got a few questions on that later on, so we'll we'll come back to those. Okay. Now, like I said, you've seen the UK scene, Malcolm, change throughout the decades and starting SPI in, in the late 70s. How have you seen it change and evolve? Um, again, from uh, you've worked with a lot of people again all throughout the UK and no doubt further afield, but how has it changed from then to now? It's changed dramatically, Andy, because um, today we have all these little gizmos, you know, for ghost investigations, uh, alleged ghost detectors, etc., which is which is great, you know, whether they truly, truly work or not, as anybody's guess. But these sensors that go off if uh, there's a ghostly presence near it, you know, the, the lights flash, etc. Fantastic. I mean, I've been on investigations. I've seen these devices working, the ghost box, the spirit box, the EVP recorders. These gizmos were not there in 1979 when I was going about, you know. And um, so it's great in that, in that extent that uh, things have moved, things have changed, because at the end of the day, we are trying to prove to Joe Public, you can laugh all you want, but, but God's sake, have a wee look, serious look at these things. Yes, we have charlatans out there. Yes, we have people out to pull the wool over your eyes. 
But within that quagmire, there are some fantastic ghostly stories and ufological stories. Um, and But it's changed dramatically in a good way, I would say. Um, definitely in a good way. Um, obviously, we still have psychics. What I don't like and what I despise and all you read in the back of the newspapers, call Sally, she'll give you a psychic reading. Yeah. Absolute nonsense, you know. Uh, and I'm not decrying that uh, the, some of these people are not good psychics. Maybe they are, but I think most of them are not. Um, some psychics are just body reading, etc. Um, I mean, I've had some wonderful spirit communication come through to me. Uh, a quick, for instance, I took my mother years ago to the Alawa Christian Spiritualist Church. She didn't want to go, didn't want to go. Why do you want me to take, take me to that, Malcolm? You know I don't like that. It's rubbish, it's rubbish. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I took her to the church and eventually during the course of the night, the, the psychic says, can I come to you, you, madam? Malcolm, is she pointing at me? Yes, mother, she's pointing at you. You better speak to her. Yes, what is it? Oh, I see. And she shouldn't actually have said this. It's like, oh, I see a divorce with you and I, and I see Ireland and I see. And she told my mum a lot of personal stuff which I didn't know. And then suddenly my mother broke down crying. And afterwards, you know, we went out and I said, what's going on, mother? What, what's this with a divorce? I was going to tell you, son, but me and your father splitting up and or we could be splitting up. But it looks that way. I didn't know. So how the hell did the psychic know this? You know, people, skeptics might say she had some runners, people who he was trying to find out. Everybody in that group, in that hall, find out as much as you can. I don't accept that, you know. So what I'm trying to say is that there are some wonderful, wonderful psychics out there. I've worked with a few all my life in SBI investigations in Scotland. And uh, I just think it's a, some, some people are gifted like that, Andy. You know, you can have six people in a haunted room Three people will see the spirit and the other three will go, what? I, I, I can't see anything. I, what are you talking about? And it's like a radio transmitter, the old ones, not the DAB ones, where you, you got the dial and you slowly turned it from radio one to radio two and you got that frequency. And it's all about frequencies. Picking up on the psychic frequency allows certain gifted individuals to, to kind of branch through into that domain. Yeah. Do you feel then with whether you're talking spirits, ghosts, apparitions, poltergeist, you can even then move to aliens, werewolves, orbs, whatever it might be, that there is a connection between all of that? Or do you feel it's totally separate phenomena? Well, there is, there's some separation to a degree. I mean, I've only dealt with one case in my life. That was down in Devon. Too big a case to speak about here, where not only was it a haunted house, but when the woman woke up, she saw a small Victorian child standing at the foot of her bed. And then on the other side of the room was a small grey alien. <laughs> now, I don't know. I've never come across that before. Um, as far as orbs go, the vast majority, <clears throat> for me personally, and I may upset a few people, is that they are moisture, they are dust particles. When you're walking along a, a castle or a stone, you know, along the corridor, you're kicking up some dust particles. You take a photograph, bang, you can see all these these um, these orbs, these these dust molecules. Um, having said that, there are a few, yes, 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 there are a few that drop down into the room and move consciously, and uh, these are the ones that are. I find more interesting, you know, so that's that's quite bizarre, yeah. I'll come back to that when later on I ask you a little bit about a, a famous ranch in the US as well to do with the, the phenomenon of UFOs and werewolves and portals and uh, spirits and entities, but 
So we've talked about the the UK scene and how it's changed through the decades and the public perception. The UK government and its approach tends to be very quiet, at least on the outside, when it comes to the subject of UFOs. What's been your experience with the you know the UK Parliament, the Scottish Parliament? Is there an interest there that we just don't hear about because it doesn't seem to be anywhere near as open as let's just say that the US right now, where there are, there are congressmen and women openly discussing this in the US? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, it's it's a great shame that uh, the Scottish Parliament and uh, doesn't release or talk more about the UFO situation in Scotland. I mean, um, when I investigated the Bonnie Bridge UFO sightings with Councillor Billy Buchanan, he's now a provost now, we approached, we went down to Downing Street with petitions from people in Stirlingshire demanding that the British government open up a government inquiry into the UFO sightings in the Central Belt. We did that with Tony Blair um, and all the sub- subsequent um, prime ministers thereafter, it fell on deaf ears, you know. And we elected these people to serve serve us, and, and they're not taking an interest. You're quite right, Andy. In America, under the Freedom of Information Act, passed many years ago, many pre-classified government documents from the CIA, FBI and NSA, the National Security Agency, clearly, clearly, clearly showed that they were a government uh, interest in these UFO reports. And um, here in the UK, um, we've had we've been drip-fed UFO reports from the Ministry of Defence, and some of these documents are heavily blacked out. Now, what I mean by that is you, you look at a document, an Air Force sheet of paper, and all the paragraphs are completely black. Why? Why? I can understand at the top of the page the, the, the witness's address, and email, etc. Yeah, of course, let's, you don't want to disclose that. But why black out all these paragraphs? But what I would say to your listeners is, let's not be fooled. You know, um, there are a number of um, objects operating in our skies, which are our own aircraft. Um, the stealth aircraft was flying for 10 years before the American um, Air Force put their hands up and said it's ours. But that gave rise to many false UFO reports during those times. They're objects, they're drones flying just round about the skies just now. People mistake them for UFOs. I've said on many shows before, as high as 95% of all UFO reports can easily be identified by normal explanations. Aircraft uh, in flight with the sun glinting off its fuselage, just, you know, you don't see the wings, etc. Debris being flown up into the air. It sounds a wee bit airy-fairy, but there is a lot of normal explanations Some of it could be um, a new rare atmospheric phenomena. And I've said it again, I'll say it again. It's the the fly in the ointment, the 1%. We're talking about real bona fide UFO machines that defy description, do twists and turns at incredible velocities. The G-force on that would be tremendous. It would kill a man, a pilot doing that. Um, So... I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't honestly, honestly feel that we're dealing, or it might be a small percent, but we're dealing with a recognisable phenomena, a global phenomena that's always been with us through the course of time. And I agree that you've got, like you say, that 95 to 99% of any reported UFO sightings are, are explainable in some way that isn't aliens, ETs, whatever other other worldly origins that people are looking for in them but i would i would still say that probably 99 percent of any sightings aren't reported anyway so it just makes that small amount that are unexplainable all the more exciting and 
you'll you'll have seen this Malcolm for a lot longer than I have as well. Like I, I'm 35, okay, and my my interest has been from a young age as well. But I've very much grown up in the internet age and and had more access to information and different a, a range of TV channels on Sky rather than you know the old one, two, three, and four. Then I remember Channel Five kind of coming along, and it was all a fifth TV channel. On, on anything that ever gets reported in the UK, especially in television, it's usually the the final piece in a news programme and it still tends to have that tone of the X-Files theme tune, the flying saucer, and it's said with a bit of a smirk and a cheeky grin by the reporter. Same yes. in the press. If, let's just say, this, this week, big news story, Friday, 6 o'clock news, everyone's sitting down in the UK. If they opened with a story of a, a sighting or a reporting in a really serious tone with some serious research and serious commentary on the back of it, what do you think the public reaction in the UK would be to that? Well, I think that'd be a wonderful stance to take if they did that at the top of the show rather than the end. Um, yeah, just in a serious tone, as you said, you know, and just state it as it is. Um, I think that would maybe shake a few trees and, and a lot of people would maybe sit up in their armchairs and look more closely at the TV and what the narrator was, was talking about. But you're right when you say that it's usually the other end of the scale. It's the end of the programme. It's a jocular thing. I mean, it's happened to me all my life, Andy. Uh, working in newspapers and the media, I've been poked fun at and all the rest of it. You know, and, and I suppose it comes with the territory. But having said that, um, people may say, well, why? Why do you still talk to the television and the radio, Malcolm? The reason is so simple, and that is that people have a right to know. They don't need to believe a word I say, or my colleagues, but at least listen to what I've got to say. And that's the same when I write my books, Andy. They're not written to see, you know, for people to say, oh, look at Malcolm, he's writing another book. It's just to get that information out, because information is for the people and not for filing cabinets. What's the point of having wonderful UFO reports and filing my way? Can I see that? No, you can't. It's in the filing cabinet. My job and my colleagues is to get that information out. And, um, you know, it's up to people to, be, to believe or not believe. And, You've you've got decades of hindsight now behind you. If you you're looking back now at all the things you've done and your colleagues have done and you've tried to do to push this subject forward, especially from a UK perspective where you've led from the front, what does it take now to get the government or the media to take this subject seriously? Or is there anything that can be done? Oh, that's a good point. I mean, um, some people might say and um, that the governments or some of the governments of this world are in cahoots with the salient technology, these back engineering programs, etc. Um, I mean, we tried, um, Provost Buchanan and I, as I said a moment ago, we tried to get the government to look into these sightings. The British government or MOD are slowly releasing files now and again. It, I don't, I, I really, really don't know if there's going to be a massive change in this because I'm, I'm, each year I'm hoping this is a year. This is a year where it's going to break. People keep saying, yes. 2021 will be the year, maybe 2022. It's going on and on and on. And I don't think we're any closer to disclosure. Um, people may bring me up on that, but I don't. It's great. It's great to see these programmes coming out um, about UFOs and all these people, these Air Force personnel, Army Force army personnel sitting down and talking about that. I mean, there should be a, a strong concern here because a lot of UFOs have been seen over silos. Um, these, these government establishments, military establishments and switching off nuclear missiles, etc. That's a fact. 
that can be searched on Google, etc. It's a pure fact, a Minuteman missile, etc. So we should be concerned. And I've said that before, you know, that that's why we went to Downing Street, because um, some of the sightings in Bonnie Bridge were so close, people could have thrown a stone at. And if that's not a, a security threat of some description or, a, a, you know, then what is? The only reason to answer that on the other side is they do know. They do know what's flying about, i.e. it's our own technology, it's our own stuff. And they're more than happy for the Air Force, to, for these new flying machines, which is ours, to go under the guise of UFOs. It covers their, their footsteps in the snow, so to speak. Um, that's only part of it. I don't believe that's all it is because there is sufficient evidence, as I said a moment ago, to say we're dealing with some form of non-human intelligence. Absolutely. And that goes with the A70 case as well. Let's jump over the water for a minute. And I'm really intrigued to have this conversation with you because there's a few ways this could go. And I'm really intrigued to see what your thoughts are. So how closely do you follow the events that have happened in the US, especially in the last three or four years with the Department of Defense, the US Navy, releasing and confirming videos of, of UAP or UFOs? Very much so. I mean, uh, I've always keep my eye to the ground, the ear to the ground, sorry, and uh, look at the, the, the ongoing events in America because they're more, as you said earlier, they're, they're more open to uh, talking about it and challenging it in, in America, which is wonderful. Here in the UK, we're more conservative, more reserved, but um, some of the, the footage coming from the Nimitz aircraft carrier and uh, showing these objects going at terrific speeds pursued by two fighter jets as well so you had not only radar visual you had sighting visual as well and they, although and it was such a surprise to myself and my colleagues when they they put this out for the world to say look at this this is incredible this um and so you say to yourself well what are they, why are they doing this uh, are they are they slowly going to be this disinformation where it's going to be um we're going to find out eventually what's going on here or is this a cover-up again is it our own technology um or is it alien technology but clearly there's a vast difference uh, in respect of the ufo phenomena across the pond as they are here we can only thank the many um private investigators here in scotland and the rest of the united kingdom who are trying to prize open the lid of the secrecy in this country and uh, that's what we'll always try to do and i hope that um when Scotland gets independence, which it quite rightly deserves, that um, SBI can challenge the UFO situation in Scotland and get the Scottish government to open up the, the files and find out more what's going on. And that's that's a whole other topic altogether, Scottish independence coming into it too, Malcolm. Um, but that's an interesting take, that if, if Scotland did gain that independence, then that's something that you could then directly challenge a devolved Scottish government to, to pick up and, and release potentially any files that were there, but then would they necessarily be up for having any more of a discussion than the, the UK government currently is? What I'd like to ask, though, is you, you mentioned about you and your colleagues uh, have kept a keen eye, obviously, on what's happened in the United States the last few years and seeing these videos come out. It still seems, and do you know what, even from a US perspective, if you take away the last three years, the the age of those, and this is no disrespect, involved in ufology didn't ever seem to get any younger. And it seemed to be the same names and faces that stuck around in the UK or the US 
to to do either lecture circuits or you know the cruise circuits and the same names that appear on you if you look at even things like ancient aliens or whatever in the us okay do you feel enough has happened outside of those people and names for younger generations to get involved or is there a, a reason that so many of the older generation people like yourself started in the late 70s are still going now do you see younger generations coming up in the uk to take over that kind of mantle and investigation Absolutely, and I, I certainly hope so for sure. You know, I mean, I'm just an old dinosaur now, <laughs> um, but um, the, we have, uh, as I say, quite a number of uh, societies here in Scotland now that's springing up, looking into this ghost research societies, UFO societies, and there are young kids coming through, and it's wonderful to see that. And uh, I'm, I mean, the kids these days have got a, a great imagination. They, they're, they're free thinking they want to find out about the wonders of the world and fair play to them you know get involved with the subject it's a fascinating subject to do and even my own daughter you know my oldest daughter um karen when um she's doing some of her own ghostly investigations now and i never asked her to you know i never said oh you must do this she just she just wanted to do that and um so that's great and um i just think yes the the young kids these days, um, get them involved, let them see what it's all about. But getting back slightly to the point you made earlier about uh, these guys that's always on the telly and stuff, I know who you're referring to, um, these American fellas. I guess in that respect, Andy, it's just because they are so clever, they're so great at talking, they've got so much knowledge that they put them on every single programme. It can get a bit repetitive, um, but having said that, there will be new people come along and there will be new people taking those places of these guys as they will when I'm no longer here. You know, people will be speaking to other Scottish ufologists and it's, it's great. Fantastic. And in respect, again, to you and your colleagues and the work that's been done on the ground over the years and again, long before you even had things like the Internet, where it was much harder to investigate because you literally had to go to the sites and the places and spend even more money on this sort of thing. Do you find a lot of your colleagues over the years have been willing to change with the times and change opinion? And again, even just as recently as the last three years, as you see a Louis Elizondo come out, and talk about the program that ran and here's some videos of UAP do you feel there's enough of a a positive attachment to that from a UK perspective that you've got people who are going yep this is something we can get behind or do you feel there's a reluctance there that this is still something that they're very wary of no I think we should use technology for sure but yeah when I started there were no internet it was hands-on you had to visit these places today you at a flick of a switch on the internet you can you can go there, uh, Google Earth, etc. Um, now, the technology, you have to be careful, and I've said this in other shows, because we're living in the Steven Spielberg age of DreamWorks Laboratory, where absolutely anything can be manipulated onto a computer yeah. to look scary and spooky, etc. So you may have a UFO, and my God, that looks like a UFO. Is that, is that really? Is it, is it? And it's not. It's just program that's been punched into that uh, scope you know that 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 landscape now the great thing about technology is whilst you can do a cracking ufo um image and it's not real at all it's not the same token you can use the same technology to disprove something by edge enhancement color separation pixel separation to see a small thin wire hanging a ufo model from a tree so technology works for and against it so that, that's great you know and i'm i'm pleased to see that uh, technology is working in that way um 
I mean, the internet, as I've grown older, the internet certainly helped me. We can get in touch with ufologists on Skype or Zoom, uh, on email all over the world. You get instantaneous reports. It's fantastic. Um, so in that respect, uh, technology is certainly a winner when it comes to the paranormal, as it was when I said earlier about the the um, EVP devices, voice box, etc. So technology has proven its worth. Whether we'll get any acceptance on what comes through that is, again, open to question. And, and do you feel, again, the the old school UK ufologists, who obviously you, you've been a part of that, they have been quite willing to to look at new ways of thinking and people talk about a threat narrative and the way the US government's getting involved. Is that something that almost raises more of an eyebrow and more questions than anything? Or do you feel people tend to be quite accepting of that finally the, the government in America might be taking the lead and we might be starting to get a bit, a bit more of a drip feed of information. Yeah, we're certainly we're certainly getting a drip feed of information, more so, we, as I said a moment ago, with the, the, the videos from the Nimitz aircraft carrier and these incredible fast-paced bogies, for want of a better word, that was screaming across the, the sky. Um, so we have to be careful about that, that uh, what they're saying is it our own technology, is it a railing technology, but um, clearly there's something. I mean, like I said earlier, um, the evidence for me, Andy, firmly convinces me we're dealing with a threat or, or at least a presence that's not of this earth. They've always been with us. You look at Renaissance paintings, you've got this UFO craft in there, you've got the rock carvings in Australia, everywhere else. Um, people have seen UFOs coming into and out of the oceans of this planet, more so uh, near the island of Puerto Rico. Um, so we're dealing with a global phenomena. That, um, people might say, well, what is the agenda? What is the resume? What's going on here? And guys like me, I don't truly have an answer. The, when we talk about abductions, uh, they're taking sperm and ova from males and females. I've been doing that for years and years and years. Why? Why do you need to do that? Surely you've got enough genetic information. You, you don't need to do it anymore. So there's unanswered questions. And there are all these chips in, in people's abductees' bodies, etc. It's a, it's a complex subject when you really get into it, yeah. It really is. And just before we move on to listener questions, Malcolm, I just want to ask you regarding the upcoming UAP task force report that was scheduled to be released in June. But there is obviously murmurs now that it may be delayed just in, in lieu of more research needing done and more cooperation. Are you expecting much to come from a declassified report that's obviously going to be made public on UAPs or UFOs? I'd like to say yes. <laughs> I definitely would like to say yes. And, and but... <laughs> But um, I wouldn't hold my breath. But you never know. You never know. Maybe maybe we're all in for a shock. Maybe the, end, the, the next dis disclosure on this will really open up a can of worms. And if it does so, that's that's fantastic because uh, the governments of the world will then have to kind of start asking questions of its own citizens who put in requests, FYA requests, to get more information. So I'm very, very hopeful that that's going to be a blockbuster when it comes out. Excellent. I'll move on to listener questions. I've got a few of these to touch on with you. Uh, the first one from Graham, and it's something I deliberately left out earlier because people listening thinking two Scottish guys talking about UFOs haven't brought up this one yet. But um, I know Graham had asked it anyway. He wants to know your opinion on the August 1990 Calvine incident. Do you think it was a secret UAV or a manned aircraft or something else entirely? 
<laughs> Good question. Um, well, obviously, the, the photograph, the original photograph went missing, as we know. Mm. Uh, two hikers saw this uh, strange diamond-shaped kind of craft being escorted by some fighter jets uh, in the skies, uh, Scottish skies. And um, I've tried to do some research on that myself, and uh, I've came up pretty much of what other other people have done. I've just got the same results, you know. Uh, I've hit a brick, brick wall with that one. But what do I think? Um, it's difficult, Andy. You know, you could say that um, it was just, again, it's our own prototype aircraft that's being flown. If it was an alien aircraft of some description, and then why, why is there no any more cloaking of that? I mean, why go during daytime etc if that was truly an extraterrestrial craft it's probably more of our own technology and I could be totally wrong and I probably am but I'm, I'm thinking possibly it's our own technology it was just a prototype but I could be wrong that's my thoughts on that one I go along with the same we, I discuss this a few times and I've my thoughts have changed over the years but for, from from murmurings and bits and pieces that tends to think that it was potentially US aircraft that was being tested uh-huh. and that's why you've got fighter jets accompanying it uh, politely along behind it as well so but yeah it would make more sense that it was ours i.e human rather than potentially something else um, still would be great to, if that original photo ever did surface and Graham also wants to know are you aware of any similar sightings to similar to Calvine over Scotland in the last 30 years or so? Um, not not with uh, jets or anything, uh, you know, escorting anything of that design. But um, obviously Scotland has seen a wealth of UFO reports uh, from the early 1990s, Bonnie Bridge and various parts of the, the Scottish Highlands and that, um, which have been not just balls of light. There have been your classic flying saucer shape. You've had the uh, triangular craft flying in the, the Fife skies, which is another big case I could have spoken about. So you have all these different shapes, uh, etc., and it makes you wonder what's going on. But yeah, there's clearly been uh, a presence in the Scottish skies, which I believe are not our own technology. And the listeners have heard about my experience often enough, but uh, when we finish up, Malcolm, I'll, I'll share mine with you because I've told it a few times on the podcast. It's a uh, not even in the sky, it was pretty much on the ground in Glasgow and Knightswood, um, so I'll, I'll share that with you after the show. Um, we've got Dave asking, uh, and he was saying, sorry, looking at your career, Malcolm, he sees you a bit of a Scottish Alan Hynek, which is a nice compliment, and that he you've set out to be quite sceptical, and you seem to now think there's something to the phenomenon that you've investigated. Is that fair? And he wants to know a little bit, what's your journey been like? Obviously, we've touched on some of that, and were there any key turning points where you really decided, do you know what, there's something to this UFO thing? Yeah, with uh, Alan Hynek, well, I, I must be like him because I share the same birthday as him, the 1st of May. Oh, lovely. <laughs> um, but key turning points in my life, uh, I mean, Alan Hynek, just before I go there, was it uh, initially put out the statement, Swamp Gas, a lot of your listeners will remember that, mm. uh, which was a bit funny. But um, uh, like me, as Alan Hynek progressed through his career, he realised, wait a minute, he's getting all this wealth of information coming from all over America. And he went from a sceptic to a believer. And uh, God bless him, you know, which is great. Um, for me, my turning points, um, UFO-wise, was not was not just uh, the Bob Taylor case, but certainly the Bonnie Bridge sightings, which we you know we we packed out the Falkirk Town Hall back in 1994 uh, with over 800 people and 400 people locked outside, couldn't get in. We had Japanese television, Dutch television, German, Italian television 
come in. Scotland's awash with cameras then. Um, but the, the A70 case, again, was another big turning point for me in, in my education on ufology. The two chaps from Edinburgh who claimed to have been abducted on the A70. That was a massive case as well. Uh, one of the witnesses passed a BBC lie detector test as well. Um, so there have been a, a lot of things, turning points in my life that's propelled me into to where I am today, yeah. Brilliant. And he also wants to know, and this is something I left to hear as well, because uh, Dave likes uh, asking some really good questions that I tend to try and fit in the show. But what do you make of the observations at Skinwalker Ranch and what could they be? It's a fascinating place, Skinwalker Ranch. Um, for those listeners who haven't seen it on the television, there was a programme on uh, last year. Uh, all about Skinwalker Ranch, and it'll be back on later this summer, I believe. Um, it's, a, it's an area uh, in America, this ranch, which sees a lot of poltergeist activity, UFO activity, strange beasts, etc. And it's a fascinating place. Now, for me personally, I think it's, it's a real deal. And it's an area of planet Earth which seems to attract a high concentration of bizarre reports than anywhere else. We call them UFO hotspots or window areas. It sounds fanciful, but that's what they're called. Places in the world that just, as I say, seem to attract this higher concentration. Bonnie Bridge in Stirlingshire was another one. You've got the Pennines in Yorkshire and England. You've got uh, Gulf Breeze in Pensacola uh, near Florida. All these areas um, have seen a lot of activity, but they're not denying that there's something very bizarre going on in um, in uh, the Skinwalker Ranch for sure. And do I know what it is? No, I don't. I believe Stateside, the new series, uh, Stateside, it's the secret of Skinwalker Ranch. And in the UK, it's the curse of Skinwalker Ranch, which is probably quite telling how we uh, sensationalise the name of it over here. Um, I think it starts on the 4th of May. And I've got the owner of Skinwalker Ranch, Brandon Fugel, confirmed coming on the podcast next month as well. So oh, I'll, I'll be talking to him about that before the before the new series. Um, and hopefully, potentially one or two of the, the stars of the show as well who work on the ranch will be coming back onto the podcast. So look forward to speaking to them as well. Um, Strafe asks a question now, a few years ago in Glasgow the Scottish UFO and Paranormal Conference took place and he mentions that known maverick Larry Warren of the supposed Rendlesham sighting turned up and was refused entry into the venue do you know much about the background to that story? Um, I wasn't expecting this question <laughs> um, yes well I'm one of the organisers uh, of the, the conference and, and sadly this year due to Covid it's going to be online uh, on Zoom, which um, it's just one of these things that happens because of the COVID. Um, Larry Warren, yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, I've got to watch what I say here. Um, I've been a great admirer of Larry Warren throughout the, the years um, as um, one of the chaps who was involved in the Rend from Forest uh, case. And um, he was due to speak at our conference in Glasgow on that particular occasion. And um, I've got to watch what I say. There, there were some threats made, alleged, alleged threats, I should say, but mm -hmm. we do have them in writing, uh, made to a lady, Sasha Christie, and um, they were not so nice. And um, so the that got to the ears of the people at Glasgow University where the conference was going to be held. And they said they did not, they, they not us, not SBI, they said, Glasgow University said, they would not have Larry Warren appearing on stage at their university as he made threats of a bad nature to this lady. So we had to pull him from the conference. 
And um, it's, a, it's one of these stories which had a lot of airplay at the time on the internet, on Facebook, etc. Um, it's just a shame, you know, because um, Larry gets a lot of bad press, you know, um, people, not just people from all over the UK and the United States say he wasn't such a big player in the Rendlesham Forest uh, case. I mean, he was there, they're not denying that. Um, but that, without going into it any further, the, the bottom line is he was, yes, he was due to speak. The threats were made against someone and it got wind to of the Glasgow University people. It was them, not SBI, that stopped Larry from speaking. And um, that's that's part of the story, yeah. No, that's, that's fair enough. Thanks for answering that as, as best you could as well. And thanks for the question. And Dennis wanted to know that he found a quote that said Steven, Steel, Steven Spielberg wanted to help Malcolm catch the Loch Ness Monster. What is the story there, Malcolm? Again, very briefly, um, part of Marima is uh, researching cryptozoology, you know, all strange creatures. And I've always been fascinated by Nessie. Uh, we went up to Loch Ness as a youngster with my family. Um, we went round Loch Ness, went up and down in pleasure cruises, etc. And um, when was it? In the 90s again, sometime in the 90s, um, I got a phone call, phone call from the Scottish Sun. And this chap says, Malcolm, if you could prove Nessie, how would you go about it? And we're doing a story about Ted Danson. He's doing a movie about Loch Ness. And um, we're just, you know, wanting to talk to somebody who's dealt with it. I says, well, funny you should call because I actually do have an idea how we could catch Nessie. You do? Yes, I do. Well, well tell us, pray tell us. And what it was, Andy, if you, could, if you and your listeners can imagine a boxing ring, you know the boxing ring, you've got the ropes, mm-hmm. the square and the ropes, only like a very, very tall vertical column, just like that, secreted in the, the floor of Loch Ness near Earthquart Castle. Now, on these ropes of this imaginary boxing ring in your mind's eye, on these ropes would be spherical balls, and uh, they would have radio biopsy darts. So any large body pushing, pushing against the ropes would automatically spring loose like a hand grenade, all these radio biopsy darts, which would immediately strike into the, the creature, rendering it unconscious and also trackable from surface divers. And um, there was more to it than that. And uh, he took some quotes and away he went. Uh, A couple of days later, I get a phone call. Uh, He says, Malcolm, you'll never believe who's interested in giving you the money to build this trap. I went, who? He says, Steven Spielberg. I says, you're joking. So um, he says, no, he says, honestly, I've been on the phone telling me he thinks this is wonderful. I made uh, big, big news all over Scotland. I've still got the newspaper cuttings here as well. And um, but sadly, it fell flat, Andy, because um, Spielberg went on to make his other blockbuster movies. But I still today find that it's a very viable uh, opportunity to to capture Nessie, because I do believe there's something in there. Sonar has clearly showed there's uh, objects, not just one, in excess of 30 feet in Loch Ness. But uh, that's another story. I could talk about Loch Ness for hours. <laughs> That's one we could definitely maybe do another time because uh, that was my original passion as a child. I had all the Nessie videos and Loch Ness documentaries and I went up there as a youngster for my birthday. My dad took me up from Glasgow once to stay over and um, just to see Loch Ness. But yeah, that was my original kind of passion. And I remember the movie very fondly as well. Um, uh, so yeah, I remember going to the cinema to see that. I remember seeing it first reported on Blue Peter and they showed an extended clip of it as well. Uh-huh. I've actually been down in a submarine in Loch Ness, one of the few guys in the world that's ever been traversed the, the Loch floor. 
back in 1994. That was wonderful as well. I'll never forget that. That was great. Scary experience? Um, not really. I was more excited. I mean, the, the submarine was sponsored by Swatch Watches. It was only about 25 feet in length, very, very claustrophobic inside. The sides were cramping in on you. At the front... Uh, toughened glass portal in the nose cone of the submarine and with about seven or eight very strong halogen lights so when the submarine descended into Loch Ness people say you can't see your your hand in front of your face there that's true to a degree but only to about 10 feet once you get through past the, the heavy peat stained particles that come down from the hillside it's clear as a bell and I've got footage to prove that on the camera when I filmed it and we went down, traversed the loch floor. There was hardly any water vegetation, sorry, vegetation. Um, then the loch floor just fell away. And I said to the skipper, can we go down there? He says, no, nope, got to stick to our allotted course. But um, <clears throat> it was a wonderful, absolutely wonderful, yeah. Amazing experience. And just to finish off, Malcolm, I like to finish off with a quick fire round. So I'm going to mention a few names, places, companies, or, or events, and I'm just looking for one word, a few words or a few sentences on each of them, uh, stuff that we may or may not have touched upon within the body of the interview. So the first one is the Bob Lazar. Uh, true. Fair enough. Uh, Louise Elizondo. Possible. Your thoughts on To The Stars Academy? Um, how do you mean, they? Obviously, the company, Lou first came out uh, with oh, Chris right. Mellon and whatnot, but obviously what's what's happened more recently, but they've left and they're going a more entertainment route. What was your thoughts on To The Stars and their intentions? Good luck on them. Rendlesham Forest? Um, uh, n- not our own. Something else. Do you prefer UFO or UAP? UAP. And finally, what does disclosure mean to you? It means the world. It means everything. It means that finally we'll get some understanding about the true nature of these anomalies, the ones that we really, really, really can't understand at this current point of time. Disclosure is everything. Disclosure is the world. And fingers crossed, whether it's, if it's not in my lifetime, I certainly hope it's in somebody's lifetime coming up that we will, as a human race, get uh, disclosure on another world, if possible. And Malcolm, how can the listeners get in touch with you, find you, or, or obviously purchase your work as well? Well, um, all my books are on uh, Amazon. Um, if you just type in my name, Malcolm Robinson, uh, and you should get all these books at, uh, on Loch Ness, uh, UFO Case Files of Scotland, Volumes 1 and 2, Paranormal Case Files of Great Britain, Volumes 1, 2 and 3, The Deckman Woods uh, Incident, and also The Socky Poltergeist, which is my latest one. And I'll be speaking at uh, the um, Scottish UFO and Paranormal Conference on um on 42 years of SBI, and uh, that's going to be out in Zoom. Um, people can email me at Malky, that's M-A-L-C-K-Y-S-P-I at yahoo.com. I'd be more than interested to hear from any listeners with any stories, photographs, etc. We'll treat it all in confidence, and it's just getting that out to people like me. We want to hear from you. That's great, Malcolm. When we finish the recording, if you hang fire, I'll share my own experience with you as well. Uh, But it's been great talking with you for the podcast and look forward to having you on again in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Andy.
that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access the shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was wet. I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and they think I should see therapy, and I don't know what it is, because it doesn't really scare me.